Hello, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast. I'm Phil Freeman, and in this episode, I'll be talking to drummer Lenny White. This is our sixth year. This is episode 71, and I decided at the beginning of this year that it was time to change things up a little. So we've got some introductory theme music, which you're hearing behind my voice. And for all 10 episodes that I'm going to be presenting this season, we're going to have a single subject, and that subject is fusion. Lenny White played on one of the most important albums in the history of fusion, Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. In the clip that you're going to hear when I finish talking, right before the interview begins, he's on the left-hand side with Jack DeJanet on the right. And you want to hear something insane? That was his first ever recording session. He was recommended to Miles Davis by alto saxophonist Jackie McLean. White was in McLean's band at the time. Within a year after that session, he had also played on Freddie Hubbard's Red Clay, Woody Shaw's Blackstone Legacy, and Joe Henderson's At the Lighthouse. In just the first half of the 70s, White was on Eddie Henderson's Realization, on two albums by a Latin jazz rock band called Azteca, and For Those Who Chant by trumpeter Luis Gasca, a record that also had Henderson and Carlos Santana and a bunch of people from across the jazz and rock spectrum. In about 1972, he joined Chick Corea's band Return to Forever and made four albums with them. Hymn of the Seventh Galaxy, Where Have I Known You Before, No Mystery, and Romantic Warrior. He also played on solo albums by Stanley Clark and Al Miola, and made records under his own name that were like a perfect storm of jazz and rock players working together. His 1977 album Big City has Herbie Hancock, Neil Sean of Journey, and Verdine White of Earth, Wind & Fire on it. But Despite being at the heart of the fusion movement at the time that it happened, White doesn't actually like the term. He prefers to call what he does jazz rock. And when you listen to what he was actually playing, that distinction is very clear and makes perfect sense. A lot of people think the use of electric instruments, particularly synths and other keyboards, is a key dividing line between fusion and the jazz that came before. And it is, but for me, it's much more about the beat. It's about the drummers. Lenny White is one of maybe five drummers who really shaped an entire genre in their image. The others are Billy Cobham, who's been on this podcast before, and Tony Williams, and Jack DeJanet, and Alphonse Mouzon. These guys played with Miles, they played with Weather Report, they played with Herbie Hancock, they led their own groups, They were the ones who established the sound of fusion by finding a way to combine the aggressiveness and drive of rock with the subtlety and suppleness of swing. And in Lenny White's case in particular, he brings a tremendous Latin feel to the music as well. The Latin element is really important because Latin musicians were stretching out just as much as their jazz and rock peers in these crucial years between 1969 and 1975. Listen to the Fania All-Stars Latin Soul Rock album, which featured guest appearances from Billy Cobham and Jan Hammer less than a month before they would leave the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Listen to what Eddie Palmieri, who's also been on this podcast, was doing on albums like Superimposition, Vamanos Palmonte, and Live at Sing Sing. Listen to Santana's run of albums from Caravanserai through Borboletta. A lot of this stuff is hardcore jazz fusion set to a Latin beat, and in terms of complexity and intensity, you can put it right next to King Crimson, Yes, and all the other prog rock acts of the time. And funk was going through a radical evolution at this point, too. Listen to how complex the songwriting and arranging is on albums by Parliament, Earth, Wind & Fire, Slave, the Isley Brothers, and these guys all knew it. They all knew each other. They all knew what they were doing, individually and collectively. There were no borders and there were no limits. Lenny White has a hilarious story in this interview about hanging out with some of the guys from Yes. 
I really enjoyed getting the chance to talk to Lenny White. He's had an incredible career, and he was there at the beginning of a musical revolution. So I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Basically, the, the theme of the interview, I guess, is going to be fusion, but there are some sort of particular corners of your discography that I really want to talk about, and then some well, sort of broader issues. So, Well, we have to clear up that word first. Oh, for sure. That's one of the things that I want to talk to you about. So, Yes. Yeah. Because that, that, use, that word is bastardized and what it is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Recorded. So you were self-taught, right, on the drums? Like, how did you decide you wanted to be a drummer? I, I don't know if, if, if that uh, is something that you think about. I think that just happens to come out. You know, if, if you uh, want to play music and you gravitate, to, to whatever instrument that is that helps you express yourself mm -hmm. and I believe that the drums were my that was my instrument you know mm -hmm. so was it your first instrument well and when I went to school they wanted me to play tuba ah. um, and uh, you know you had to be you had to uh, had two years experience in order to play drums so I lied and told them that I did <laughs> I see now I've heard that you that you set your kit up a little bit differently from some other drummers right that you have certain things on the opposite side from other players tell me is there no. anything oh no okay. I was I was, was left-handed and when I went to school, they switched me and made me right-handed. And so what I carried over is I play my ride cymbal with my left hand. I my drum set up as a right-handed drummer, but it's just that I play the ride cymbal with my left hand. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Billy Cobham does it also, and Carter Buford does it too you know so uh, I'm not the only one that does that <laughs> mm -hmm. it, 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 we're a few but I'm not the only one that does that okay okay so it's not a full on thing like the way Hendrix used to flip his guitar upside down or anything like that well to to a certain degree I, I don't play left handed but I play the ride cymbal with my left hand you know mm -hmm. I mean don't switch the whole drum set around, no. Yeah. But when I play brushes, I play right-handed, too. Okay, okay. Now, one of your earliest recordings, maybe your earliest appearance on an album, was uh, the Joe Henderson record, Live at the Lighthouse. Now, that was recorded out in California, but you're from New York, so, I mean, I assume, was there a tour? Like, how many shows did you play with that group? Oh, yeah, it was a tour, but... Um, before that, I played on Bitches Group with Miles Davis. Okay, chron and that chronologically, that came first? Yes, okay. that was first. And 
actually I played on a record with um, Andrew Till called Passing Ships after that and then I played on Red Clay mm-hmm. with Freddie Hubbard all in Joe like 69, 70 right in there in 70, in uh-huh. 70. and then Joe Henderson asked me to be in his band so I had recorded with him um, with Freddie Hubbard before recording the, the Life at the Lighthouse. Okay, okay, yeah. So, what are your uh, what are your memories of that tour? You know, like how many shows did you guys play before getting out to the Lighthouse and stuff like that? Was there a big circuit at that time still? Sure, I mean, but that was you know the the band that uh, recorded that record was a while after because um, I played in that band with George Cables and Stanley Clark mm-hmm. and Stanley Clark left and went and played with Chick um, and along with Chick they played together with Tony Williams and played with um, Stan Getz. Oh, wow. Okay. And at that time, by, by then, um, I had left that band and played with Freddie Hubbard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Joe's tour, I mean... Joe's tour was, you know, it was the kind of standard tour, you know, going across the country, playing clubs, things. Um, But how that band actually um, started because Shaw played in that band with Joe Henderson also. Yeah. And after that, I mean, there was a, uh, Reggie, uh, what was Reggie's last name? Reggie, um, hmm, I forgot Reggie's last name now, but he played in that band with Woody Shaw. And when Reggie decided that he was going to go to California and, you know, do studio work, uh, that's when I went and heard. Uh, Stanley Clark played with um, Har Silver and Stanley left Har Silver and came and played with Joe uh-huh. with, with George Cables George Cables and I and um, Reggie Johnson was the bass player Reggie Johnson and Reggie decided to leave to go to California and that's when Stanley Clark got in the band and we played you know uh, uh, I don't know maybe it was about uh, 18 months or so um, and then um, I left and George and I left and played with uh, Freddie Hubbard mm-hmm. at the same time that Stanley went and played with Chick and they formed going to forever so that's kind of the uh, lineage of how that that stuff happened there yeah at that point yeah everybody all kind of circulating around through each other's groups yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I read some just recently on Twitter I read somebody describe you because there was kind of a discussion going of you know early 70s music and I read somebody describe you as the fusion era drummer who was best able to combine rock and the clave. Can you talk a little bit about the the presence of Latin music into your style? Because I do feel like that's something that's fairly prevalent in your work with Return to Forever and then with Al Miola on his early solo records and stuff like that. So tell me about how you integrate that stuff into your into your playing. Well, I when I left uh, Freddie Hubbard, 
I mean, I had I had done uh, Bitches Brew and Red Clay, and then I actually played with Joe on the road, Joe Henderson and Freddie Hubbard on the road. And when I left Freddie Hubbard, I got a call to go in uh, to go to California and play in a band called Azteca, which was Coke and Pete Escovito. Mm-hmm. Coke Escovito was uh, Pete Escovito's brother. Pete Escovito is Sheila E.'s father. Right, right. And so I played a great deal of Latin music by playing in that band. But that band also included Tom Harrell on trumpet, Mel Martin on saxophone, um, Neil Sean played some guitar, um, and Paul Jackson, who played Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters, was in that band also. And so it was a very big band. It was like four horns, four vocalists, three keyboard players, uh, percussion, and you know. So I played a lot of Latin music, and I also, when I was out in San Francisco, working with, I got an opportunity to play with Victor Pantoa, who was in band, and. Uh, Carmelo Garcia and um, Armando Parazza and uh, Francisco Aguilera. So I played a lot of Latin music from the traditional Latin sense. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, Chick decided to uh, form Return to Forever, Actually, when Iatro was in that band, Chick used to call it a samba band because that's what that is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of Brazilian stuff in the in that group very early on. So, I mean, my uh, playing with um, Azteca kind of helped form me to have perspective of playing Latin music in a lot of different ways. So when I was asked to do Return to Forever, um, I, I had it done. I mean, I had it there already. So, you know, yeah, kind of worked. Yeah. And I mean, from for the benefit of somebody who's not a drummer, you know, or is not, maybe not even a musician, like how do you kind of integrate those different styles you know like if you're switching back and forth between a rock band and a latin band and a jazz group like how do you kind of integrate those things into a holistic approach to drumming it's attitude we see it's a very interesting perspective because you know a lot of people like to codify music musical styles and Say that it diff- but but what differentiates the musical style is attitude. Now rhythms are rhythms. I mean, a clave is a clave. So if it's two three clave, three two clave, they're both the claves. And how you hear that and and use that in whatever kind of music that you play, that comes to your personal perspective and your personal attitude about how you play any kind of music. You know, there's this age-old debate about you play classical music differently than you play jazz music, but they're the same notes. And your attitude and how you approach them, that is differentiates the musical styles. And, and, but it's but they're the same notes, I mm-hmm. mean, you know. So, um, how you hear something, um, that's your own personal take. And I believe that's what separates different musicians is they have their own personal take on it. 
as opposed to saying, you know, you, when you play rock music, you're supposed to play it this way. When you play classical music, you're supposed to play it this way. And when you play Latin music, you're supposed to play it this way. Now, they all three of those musics have different approaches. But I think how that personal drummer approaches all three different things that's a, a thing that separates drummers from other drummers is how they you know approach and play it and for me I had to be as authentic as I could be in playing those different musical styles but you know for me jazz music is a heritage it's not a particular style and I learned it from my heroes, the Magnificent Seven. And, you know, I kind of expanded it, expanded my perception of it by the many different types of musics that I tried to play authentically. one record that I really one of the records that you played on in the early 70s is something that it's one of my favorite under-recognized records of that era was uh, For Those Who Chant by Luis Gasca the trumpet player because you're on there Joe Henderson's on there Stanley Clark's on there Carlos Santana's on there and then there's two drummers Mm -hmm. credited it's you and Michael Shreve so I mean tell, tell me about that session because I really I really love that record and the kind of thing that it stands for, which is that sort of openness, because you have people from all these, you know, different worlds working together to make this music, you know? Well, here's here's a point that I'd like to make, and this will help me define my perception of that music that we played that was not called fusion. It was jazz rock. Mm-hmm. Michael Reeve had played with Santana and Santana was called a rock band even though they had uh, a Latin tinge on what it is that they did they were a rock band I had played with Miles Davis I had played with Freddie Hubbard I played with Joe Henderson Herbie Hancock Ron Carter and so I was called a jazz musician and then when I went and played with Azteca I was playing hybrid music that was like antenna and a rock feel to it so Bitches Brew was jazz rock so all of these situations that I had been put in at that time were hybrid musics, musical styles mm-hmm. that were not fusion. They were hybrid musical styles. Most of us that played from the jazz vernacular were jazz musicians playing our versions of rock and roll. And then there were the rock and roll musicians that were infusing with us and playing jazz. So it was jazz rock. And Michael and I had, you know, around 1969, 1970. And, you know, we've been friends for that long. We would get together. I mean, a lot of what... Uh, Caravan Sarai, mm-hmm. the record that that um, Santana did, they were he, Mike, and Carlos were listening to a lot of different types of music, 
they were listening to Bitches Brew. They were listening to some of the stuff that I did with Joe Henderson and Frederick Hubbard. They were listening to Sergio Mendez. And, you know, Michael and I spent a lot of time together listening to cassettes and comparing musical notes. And so when that record, that Skaska together uh, happened, you know, we, that's what we were doing. We were listening to all these different kinds of things, along with listening to uh, Tony Williams and Life, the Lifetime Band, and listening to Jimi Hendrix, and listening to Led Zeppelin, and in and taking all those different things and playing our version of the music. See, we didn't have any name for it. We just were taking these different musical attitudes and styles and putting them together and playing what we heard. The energy, the energy that was created with us looking at these different musical styles and combining them is what we were interested in. And we were interested in trying to be as authentic as we could represent these different musical styles. Yeah. That, I think, is the, the key to it all, because that, that era is really, like, that's the music that I probably listen to the most for pleasure, and probably the music that I think is some of the most creative stuff of, like, the 20th century was things that were made between, I would say, 69 and, like, 74, 75. You know, I, I agree with you because nothing had been heard like that before. Mm-hmm. And it created a whole new attitude about how to play music because before that time period, you would never ask a jazz musician to play rock beats. You would never have rock musicians play on complex, complex modes like was played at that time period. Plus, the virtuistic playing superseded, well, I mean, you know, like, there's, okay, I listened to John Bonham and I actually read a book mm -hmm. where John was talking about, he had done like many interviews where they would talk to him about all of the uh, recordings that the, he had done with Led Zeppelin. And you know, like there would be, he would talk about Black Dog and he'd say, well, this is what we were thinking about, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I read part of the book, and he said, when we start, when we were recorded In My Time of Dying, this time we had started to listen to more progressive music, and I was listening to Tony Williams, Lenny White, and Alphonse Mouzon. Now, this is John Bonham talking. Mm hmm so there was this attitude that was shaping the music that was being played at that time. And the attitude was, we're going to be inclusive of all these different kinds of things that were happening. Because energy, really, the energy that was being created by people experimenting with these different musical styles is what really fueled the art form at that time. That actually is a, is something that I was going to ask you about because I didn't I didn't think of Muzon, so I guess there's five because the the big four drummers that I that I think about in that early '70s era is yourself, Jack DeJanet, Tony Williams, and Billy Cobham, and each of you 
was kind of equally conversant in jazz and rock, like we've been talking about. But what's interesting to me is that you each also had a degree of precision to your playing that I don't think is there in the work of like rock drummers of the time, like Ginger Baker and Bonham and Carmine Apice and Ian Pace from Deep Purple. Like they all had a kind of looseness and sloppiness to a degree that none of the other guys would, that none of you guys would allow yourselves to have, it seems like. Can you explain that to me or am I completely off base here? Like, No, you're not off base. You know, the, the, uh, commitment and and um, it was a different attitude when you played jazz music um, and it, it's a totally different commitment that you have you represent that music and I think bringing that commitment into our perception of playing our version of rock and roll, I think that that's basically what it was. I mean, uh, it was interesting because <laughs> what was talked about is how Bitches Brew had rock beats, rock rhythms, and. I don't think we were playing rock rhythms at all. We were playing a version of how we would play jazz, but we maybe would play a simpler beat, a mm -hmm. simpler thing with it. I mean, Tony was the guy that messed everybody up because <laughs> he took he took a standard jazz group can't get any more standard than an organ trio. I mean, you got a trio, a quintet, a sextet, uh, and an organ trio. And he put the organ trio on steroids and played stuff that was like incredible. He played stuff similar to what you heard him play with Miles, but he just simplified, if you want to call it simplification, because it was never simple, but played a backbeat. And and I heard that the impetus behind it was he heard uh, um, the Who played, and he said, man, you know, I can do that. I could give my version of what that is. Mm -hmm. He heard Keith Moon play, and he said, well, I'm going to give you my version of what rock and roll should be. And Miles did the same thing. Miles said that I I can have the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And that's what Bitches rules. His perception of what he thought rock and roll should be. As the 70s went on, like mid, you know, like from say 73 to 77 or 78, I feel like, you know, as the music became what critics referred to as fusion, there was a there was a strong element of science fiction in it. It seemed like you had Wayne Shorter writing pieces called Cosmic Navigator and Stanley Clark with Vulcan Princess and. Return to Forever doing all kinds of, you know, science fiction-y stuff, and your own stuff, the Astral Pi uh, Pirates album. And then at the same time, on the, on the more commercial quote-unquote side, you had all the mythology surrounding, you know, George Clinton and P-Funk. And I'm kind of curious why you think all that stuff emerged in the music at the same time and then the broader question, the weirder question to me is, given all of that, why is 
being a science fiction fan so often thought of as a white thing? <laughs> well, that's a very interesting perception there. Uh, see, I, I, I'll tell you where, um, of course, I love science fiction. I've loved science fiction all my life. As a kid, you know, growing up, I loved science fiction. But I thought what was interesting is that when I started to listen to this progressive rock music, when I listened to Yes and King Crimson, that, I don't know if it was just science fiction, that was like, uh, I don't know, mythology from the perspective of uh, the European English uh, history mm -hmm. making itself into the progressive rock world. And you know, like then you had um, Roger Dean's paintings exemplifying and, and making Yes's music have a symbiotic relationship. And so like you visually saw something and the music matched what you visually saw. And I know that that influence helped me influence the guys in Return to Forever. So <clears throat> when we thought about it from a, a I, you want to call it a, a science fiction uh, perspective, you know, science fiction, there was, you know, it, science fiction movies that we watched and, you know, that took on somewhat of a perspective in music that we uh, tried to write. But, I mean, you know, but think about it from the perspective of what was Tchaikovsky thinking about when he wrote Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy? What is the Sugar Plum Fairy? You know, um, as, I don't know, would that be considered science fiction? I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> we're talking about images. Yeah. And I think, and I think when musicians create music that exemplifies certain images i mean it could be anything i mean i don't i don't know if um the images of the music that mahavishnu created had anything to do with science fiction i don't know um Lifetime, I, you know, beyond games, and of of course, artists tend to to create imagery um, that covers a lot of different things and, and goes a lot of different ways. And and you know, I don't know if it was just science fiction. I yeah, you know, I agree with you that there was, but what was bitches brew? Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that that was science fiction too? I mean, I'm just yeah. I'm just asking. I don't know. Yeah, you to know. a degree, I think. Yeah, or like the cover art on Live Evil, for example. You know, is like it's kind of an African well, Matthew, cosmology Matthew, Matthew kind Clarewin. of a thing. Yeah, the, the painter Matthew Clarewin. I mean, he was great at creating these images, and you know when Miles chose him to um, create an image of the music that he heard when he heard Bitches Brew, um, I think that that was absolutely brilliant what he did. But I'm sure if, if I, that could be science fiction. I, you know, I, I don't know. I know for, for me, when I did Venusian Summer, Mm -hmm. I was definitely thinking about science fiction. 
when I did Big City, I was definitely thinking about science fiction. Uh, I was a big Star Trek fan, and I kind of, I wanted to create images that uh, satisfied what it is that I saw in the movies that I saw. And I thought that that would be a good vehicle to um, communicate. Yeah. And I guess, I guess it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. ask you a bit about uh, I guess the way the way that I would describe it would be again about you know the way things are coded and the way things are marketed because I feel like okay return to forever Mahavishnu weather report and even the electric miles records despite the fact that a lot of the black a lot of the players in those bands were black I feel like those records were coded as white by the industry and marketed to white listeners, to rock people. Meanwhile, Stanley Clark's solo albums, your solo albums, Freddie Hubbard's stuff, Donald Byrd's stuff, George Duke's records, I feel like those were all marketed to black audiences, even though the level of technical musicianship was, this, was very, very much the same. They were just as complex, just as, you know, challenging and stuff like that. So as somebody who lived through that era and was playing that music, was that your impression as well of how it was treated by the industry? Somewhat, yes. I mean, the industry, see, you got to understand, there was music. And then when... Um, there was a way that they found out that to sell music, it became the music business. And then when they decided that there's a way that we can really make a ton of money by manufacturing music, it became the music industry in any industry manufacturer's product. So, in finding target audiences, I believe that artists were steered certain ways so that their music could be codified and sold. I know that all of the my friends and fellow musicians that made music on that time period. We did have in our sites ways to create music that could be sellable. Mm -hmm. And to a certain degree, um, all of us did that. And we had some success at doing that. What it's come to be since then is I don't know, it's it's dark now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. Could, that's the only <laughs> thing I could say because those attitudes that that we had back in that time period still had music and virtue virtuosity in the throes of what it is that we created. They kind of, it was kind of co-created. So the idea was to be able to play and show that you could play, but also let people dance too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to, 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 to the point that 
musicians that were highly successful, you wouldn't think that they were great musicians like Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder's a great... Stevie Wonder is... I mean, in terms of composition, Stevie Wonder is a jazz musician. If you listen to his compositions, it's incredible that he was able to to take what he heard, the, the music that he heard, which was really jazz-oriented, mm-hmm. put it into to uh, put it into a way, uh, put it into a form that was extremely popular because he wrote great melodies and great lyrics. But this, I mean, Sir Duke, that is a great jazz piece if you think about it mm-hmm. and, and how it's done. But Prince, too. Prince was a great musician and he also was a great performer to the point where he knew how to make people dance, but he always would put, because he listened to Miles, Return to Forever, Weather Report, all of those bands that were popular at the time by playing virtuistic music, he included that in his perception too. I feel like also you get, I mean, particularly Motown and also the early 70s Philly soul guys, Gamble and Huff and all them, there were a lot of jazz dudes playing on those sessions. So you got that virtuosity in, like, infused into the arrangements for pop and R&B songs, you know? Listen, Gamble and Huff came to... uh, a CBS convention in California that returned to forever that and I'll never forget Kenny Gamble coming to us and saying I mean John and everybody was coming and listening to what it is we were doing at that time and Kenny Gamble came to us and said man listen if you guys could get a singer that could sing like you guys play you would rule the world <laughs> I'll never forget him saying that he said, you would, you would rule the world, bro. I'm telling you right now. Because what you guys can do, and musically what's happening, is fantastic. And just need to way, need a way to get it so everybody could get it. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, we played... We played uh, the, the uh, um, Woolman Skating Rink in... Central Park and held 7,000 people and Return to Forever did a gig there outside mm-hmm. and they broke the fences down and when we played there there was 12,000 people there wow we did we did not have a singer we did not have a number one single on the radio and 12,000 people came to 7,000-seated venue and broke the fences down to come and hear that band. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I'm saying about that whole era. Like, you had, you know, Santana and Herbie touring together, you know, like with Herbie, you know, with the Headhunters opening for Santana. You had the Fania All-Stars and then Billy Cobham and Jan Hammer playing with them, you know, at like Giant Stadium or whatever. Like there was this real sense that it was all one thing. Like if you were pushing the music forward, it was all one thing, you know, like Mahavishnu, I think, toured with Yes, you know, it's... But it's Return to Forever toured with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. We, we, We toured with Santana. We toured with Focus. Mm-hmm. We toured with Leslie West and the Wild West. <laughs> I mean, you know, we had done stuff with Fleetwood Mac. I mean, yes, what was happening with music is that now, here's where that term comes. There was 
music was infusing and so the boundaries were dropping the 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 lines were being blurred because you had musicians and bands of different genres experimenting by crossing the lines but that's what was happening musically at that time period this this was you know 1969 America uh, was not innocent anymore and mm-hmm. from that point on it became a thing to challenge music challenge art challenge politics challenge everything and it became a, a whole new world yeah yeah so let me let me jump forward a little bit because I wanted sure. to ask you about something in 2010 you because you've done a lot of production like from the 70s you know starting in the 70s you've done a lot of production not just on records that you played on but also pop and R&B stuff um, mm-hmm. but in 2010 you produced this album for Stanley Clark which won a Grammy but you did not play drums on it. So tell me about Ronald Bruner, who was the drummer on that record. What was your impression? Because I feel like the Bruner brothers are actually really important modern day artists in the sense that we've been talking about. Because I mean, they cross from jazz to funk to punk to metal. Like they were both of them, Ron and his brother uh, Thundercat were both in suicidal tendencies as well as playing with Kamasi Washington and straight ahead jazz people. So, like, what was your take on working with Ron on that record? I've known them since they were, I mean, <laughs> they are really great musicians. They, they come from a lineage that get, I don't know how to explain it, they get the impetus from what it is that we did. And, you know, when when Ron played with Stanley, you know, um, it was a good thing for Ronald to do that. Um, they both were very good musicians. And they were very good musicians because they listened to what they, they had different sensibilities. The sensibilities were um, they they knew where this music came from, or the perception of where the music came from. Plus, by that time period, they were sponges, and they heard. Yeah, suicidal tendencies, all these other kinds of hybrid bands that had gotten their feet wet by listening to the music that we had done. Mm-hmm. So they were good musicians. And, you know, um, that they've done what they've done and played in so many different kinds of situations is proof of that. Yeah, yeah. Do you, you're a teacher now, so do you find that your students don't draw as sharp a line between genres as previous generations did? Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's worse now than it's ever been. And, and yes, I mean, you know, the fact is, one of my students asked me the other day, he said, what do you think, where do you think, they ask me that verb, that question all the time, the proverbial question of, where do you think jazz is going? And I said to him this, I said, that's kind of a weird question to ask because jazz always morphs, but the aesthetic 
behind why music is made has changed. This is the first time it's changed. The 21st century is a different animal. And so I can't can't qualify what jazz is going to be here in the 21st century because what it was in the 20th century and the sensibilities, how the methodology behind creating it has changed. And it's changed for all kinds of music, not just jazz. Mm-hmm. And so that question is, is a baited question. I, 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 I don't know. Because I'm a 20th century musician negotiating my way through the 21st century and this is and it's unlike anything that i've seen to this point now what i want to qualify and say behind that is i am not in any way saying that music needs to go back to the 20th century to be you know qualified and that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is today I think musicians today should make music that does three things. It should show in their music where music came from. Have a good basis of where the music came from. It should show what is happening currently in music. And it in that music also should show the potential of what music can be in the future. And I'm not, I haven't found that many bands that are doing all three of those things. Mm. There, there are bands that are playing what music was and that's as they go. Then there's bands that are playing what's today. That's as far as they go. And then there are bands that are doing experimental things that I don't know what that's going to be. The, as I said, just for me personally, the bands are the bands that do all three things. I'm working with a band, Young Now, that I think is going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm producing a band now that's really good, man. <laughs> yeah, what do you what do you see as your role as a producer when you come onto a project? You know, if somebody hires you to produce your produce their album, what does what does that entail in your mind? Are you like a you know? Are you a heavy, heavy-handed producer, like who says you need to, you know, go home and write better songs and then come back? Or because you know, for example, one of the one of the guys that I know who produces rock records, he mostly uh, he claims to treat it like being a barber. He says, you know, I can cut your hair, but you need to tell me how you want your hair cut, and then it's my job to get it as close to your vision as possible. But is that the way you look yeah, at it, or are you more, you know, trying to mold and shape the music? Okay, have, for me, I'm a huge movie fan. Huge. Um, and I look at making records as being a director of movies. Mm-hmm. Songs are scenes, actors the musicians and I go on I mean like for instance are you a movie guy yeah yeah okay so have you ever seen the original version of Nightmare Alley no I've read the book I've never seen the original movie okay so you know that uh, there's a new one coming out uh in a week yeah yeah so it's interesting I want to see what we came from the original what they do 
with it. See, the same thing that I told you about what bands should do, I feel as though the same thing should happen with records. Records should have a perspective that, man, yeah, well, that sounds like, well, I remember that. That's really great. But wow, they put it in a time. And that's, and man, that right there, wow. Never thought that anybody would do that musically. That's different stuff. That's too. So I think that as a producer, that's what I try to do with an artist. If an artist comes to me and asks me to produce their record, they have listened to what it is that I've done in the past. And they say, we like what you did here. We'd like to have some of that in what it is we hear now. Mm-hmm. But where should we go? Where should we go? How do we take what's current and put it in to the 22nd century? Or is that too far for us to go? Or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, let me help you navigate where I think that you can go where no one else is gone and people say I want to use this band as a direction of where music should go because what I hear in them is that groove that I've heard before that was it sounded like Stevie there but wow man then we went they went here this and this was different that's really cool and then they went to this point here and man I never heard nothing like that before see cause when I made music with Stanley and Chick and Miles and Marcus Bernard Wright and all these different things that I made music with at the time we were making the music, especially with Miles, we had never heard nothing like that before. It was new to us what it is what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And then we had an opportunity to take what had been done and amp on that and then infuse some things that we heard in the 19th century and put it in there. And, wow. That's interesting. They use a, ce- a real cello on that. Wow. Wow. I've never heard that before. Wow. That's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I'm always, I'm like an alchemist. I'm trying take these different things, trying to take metal and, you know, get some gas with that and do something different. You know, I, I, I really relish great directors the same way I relish great producers. I mean, you know, I got an opportunity to to meet some of my hero producers and discuss music with them. So, you know, I mean, George Martin is fantastic. No holes barred. I mean, you know, like uh, great, great producers make great music. <laughs> with great artists mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah listen thank you so much for talking to me man I've really I've really enjoyed it I've I, it's funny because when I when I started preparing for this conversation like I knew I wanted to talk to you but then I, I started going back through my record collection and looking stuff up online and I realized just how many records that I have that you played on you know, because I recognized you on the Return to Forever records, you know, and on Stanley's records and stuff like that. And then, but then it kind of spiraled out. I'm like, wait, he was on that? He was on that? You know, it, it just kind of became like this vortex. You you really I'm have... Just, I'm, I'm just old. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's like we were talking about that whole early 70s period, like 69 to 74, all of you guys were kind of... It was like a meteor shower. You all were kind of circling around each other in a million different directions at once, you know? 
everybody that, you know, bouncing ideas off attitude. each other. Exactly. That was attitude. And we wore it like a badge. You know, you could not make a record that was one color, of one shape. That was corny. And you'd be called out for that. <laughs> you know, that had, it, it had to have angles. It had to have different colors. It had to go many, many places. It had to be deep. So, I mean, that's what, that was par for the course. You know? Yeah. I, I remember, I remember going to Patrick Mraz's apartment in London. Return to Forever was playing in London. And Stanley Clark and I had gone to Patrick Mraz's uh, apartment. And by this time, he was playing in Yes. Okay. And bass player um, Chris Squire was there and Steve Howe and his wife were there and we had just recorded Return to Forever's Romantic Warrior and we were playing it for them <laughs> and uh, Chris Squire's wife or Steve Howe's wife I don't remember which one she said my god it must have taken you guys forever to do this record sounds so great and I said yeah it took us the longest we've ever taken to make a record it took us 11 days she said 11 days <laughs> take these guys 11 months to get a snare drum sound are you kidding you know <laughs> so yeah we we were all at that time period listening to each other and getting inspiration from each other and I think really it was a great period for music because music morphed and it was inclusionary of a lot of different kinds of things that have been around for centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm kind of fascinated by something that Robert Fripp from King Crimson talks about where he says, you know, what you do is you gather the players in the room, and if you're lucky, music with a capital M enters the room with you. Well, yeah, that comes from trust. You have to trust the musicians that you're playing with, and they have to trust you. Trust is the highest dynamic in society. It's over love. But when you trust another human being, another artist, then the magic happens. <laughs> 